I'm going to look at the work of the International Law Commission in relation to the Most Favoured Nation Clause, what the Commission has done in the past, and what has led it to look at the subject of the Most Favoured Nation Clause again. And this raises questions both about the topic of Most Favoured Nation Clause, or MFN as I shall sometimes call it, and also the role of the International Law Commission. Well, the starting point is what are we talking about with an MFN clause? What does a most favored nation clause mean? Well, a most favored nation clause in a treaty is a provision under which a state agrees to treat another state no less favorably than it treats any third state, and that's the origin of its name. You are granted, or a state is granted, the treatment that another state's most favored nation gets. And as some have put it, a most favored nation clause gives you the best treatment that other states uh, are granted as well. The, the, the clause has a long-standing history. Uh, it goes back to the early days of treaties of friendship, commerce, and navigation, which states entered into to regulate the way that foreigners would be treated in each other's territory. Those uh, friendship, commerce, and navigation treaties dealt with other issues as well. They dealt with navigation, but the central provision was really about how foreigners were going to be treated, uh, and this was done through the Most Favored Nation Clause. And I'm just going to read one, which goes right back to 1654 in a treaty between Great Britain and Sweden. And that treaty provided, the people, subjects, and inhabitants of both confederates shall have and enjoy in each other's kingdoms countries, lands, and dominions, as large and ample privileges, relations, liberties, and immunity as any other foreigner at present doth and hereafter enjoy. So that shows that the provision has been around a long time. And what it was saying is if you were a Swedish nas national in Great Britain, you were entitled to as good a treatment as any other foreign national was entitled to. And if you're a Great Britain national in Sweden, you'd also get uh, the best treatment that was given to other foreigners. But of course, it said nothing about the way in which the treatment would be given in relation to nationals. It was a provision that said you would get the same treatment as the most favored foreigners, but it didn't say that you'd necessarily get the same treatment as nationals. There was no guarantee that Great Britain would treat Swedish nationals as well as they would treat British citizens. And there's no guarantee that Sweden would treat Great, British, Great Britain's nationals as well as it treated its own citizens. It was just a guarantee that they would not treat them any worse than the best treated foreigners. It was not what we would call a national treatment provision. It was a non-discrimination provision, but a non-discrimination uh, provision amongst foreigners. Well, the old treaties of friendship, commerce, and navigation were really concerned about the treatment of entrepreneurs. They really, it was all about economics. It was all about foreigners who wanted to go and establish business or establish themselves in another country. They were the individuals who were going to get this most favored nation uh, or MFN treatment. But in those earlier treaties, they actually applied to a, a broader range of things. They related to, as I mentioned, uh, navigation, transportation. They often related to diplomatic, consular, and other uh, relations. Privileges and immunities of diplomats were based on a most favored nation provision, often relating to administration of justice. And uh, as it developed in relation to trade uh, and financial payments. And that, of course, became the major use 
of most favored nation provision. Because in some of these areas, the need for a most favored nation or non-discrimination as between foreigners disappeared with the development of more multilateral conventions. Diplomatic and consular relations, for example, were regulated ultimately by multilateral conventions where states undertook to treat diplomats or consular officials uh, in the same way. So once you had those multilateral conventions, you didn't need any bilateral uh, most favored nation treatment. But in the area of trade, this became very important. And it became important particularly with the provision that was included in the GATT. In 1947, GATT Article 1 put, set out what is known today pretty much as a classic most favored nation provision. And in brief terms, GATT Article 1 said that every right privilege granted by one contracting party to the product of another contracting party would be immediately and unconditionally granted to the like products of all contracting parties. And it was to be applied with respect to customs duties and levies at the border and at all internal charges. So that if a country uh, imposed a duty on the product of nation A at the border, it could not impose a higher duty on the product of nation B, on the same product from nation B. And this became a cornerstone of the GATT. And it has a lot to do with the whole economic rationale uh, for trade. Free trade is built on the idea that if countries produce what they're most efficient at producing and trade with other countries, rather than trying to produce everything within their own borders and trying to keep foreign goods out, then what will happen is that efficient production will increase production. Costs will be lower because countries will be producing their goods that they are most efficient at producing, and ultimately consumers benefit. But of course, if a country raises tariffs, that simply increases costs to consumers and it diminishes the benefits of free trade. And if they discriminate between the goods of different countries at the border, again, they diminish the advantage of having the most efficiently produced goods. So the most favored nation provision in the GATT prevented the discrimination between goods from different countries uh, at the border. If goods of state A were granted a preferential tariff, easier access into a country, then according to GATT Article 1, the uh, country had to grant exactly the same uh, privilege to every other trader that was entering goods into that country. And of course, the effect of the national treatment uh, provision uh, meant that once the goods came into the market, then both the MFN provision, which said you can't discriminate between foreign, different foreign goods in your market, added with a national treatment provision, which says you can't discriminate as between domestic and foreign goods, led to a broad non-discrimination principle which favored the uh, trade in, uh, in goods. GATT Article 1 was a multilateral form of most favored nation. The old Friendship, Commerce, and Navigation Treaties granted most favored nation treatment on a case-by-case -case basis. It would, be entered, it would be included in a bilateral treaty between State A and State B. GATT Article 1 meant that as long as you became a party to the GATT, then you're entitled to most favored nation treatment in respect of your goods uh, without having to enter into separate bilateral treaties as you did in the old days. 
It was also unconditional. You simply, as a party to the GATT, you're entitled to most favored nation treatment. It was not granted on a basis of reciprocity, which again the old Friendship Common Commerce Navigation Treaties did. So MFN became a principle of non-discrimination. And as I said, it became a broader principle of non-discrimination when under the GATT it was allied with the national treatment provision. MFN says you can't discriminate as between foreign goods. National treatment says you can't discriminate between foreign and domestic goods. And if you put those together, you end up with a broad non-discrimination uh, uh, principle applicable to trade and applicable to goods uh, of countries that enter uh, through the border uh, into, a, uh, into a market. Now I mentioned that the reason for this was primarily economic. A non-discrimination goods allowed the effect of efficient production to operate. It allowed that free trade principle to operate. It simply meant that countries, if they lowered their tariffs and didn't discriminate, they got the benefit of the most efficient production. So the rationale for MFN, although it is a principle of non-discrimination, was really not some kind of ideal of discrimination or non-discrimination. It wasn't a principle based on the equality of states. It was a principle based on the rationale that the economies would be better off if they didn't discriminate as between goods from different countries. And I'll come back shortly to explain the expansion of that notion. But I think it's important to understand at the outset that much of MFN in the period after the Second World War was focused uh, on non-discrimination in respect of trade, and particularly trade in goods. And that was the situation in which the ILC first looked at the question of the Most Favored Nation Clause. It in fact arose out of the work of the Commission on the Law of Treaties, in some of the earlier reports on the law of treaties, the special rapporteurs noted this particular provision that was found in treaties, most favored nation provision, and wondered whether it needed to be treated as a particular kind of provision in treaties. And it was decided that it would not be taken up under the law of treaties, but that it would be taken up as a separate issue. And during the course of the work of the commission, there were two separate special rapporteurs Mr. Ushtor and Mr. Ushikov, who dealt with this provision. Both of them were actually from socialist countries at the time, even though the, the, the MFN provision was really a provision that applied uh, more readily in the context of free market uh, economies. And I think perhaps the fact that this was the old Cold War period uh, and the fact that it was two uh, special rapporteurs from socialist countries might have had an impact in the way the draft articles were perceived. But I'll come back and look at what has happened to the draft articles. The approach of the special rapporteurs was to try and view most favored nation not really in economic terms, but more in terms of the equality of states and in, in, in the light of the charter principles relating to self-determination, non-discrimination, and they also wanted to look at it in the context of what was then known as the new international economic order. Now the reports of the special rapporteurs are filled with considerable state practice on the conclusion of treaties that included MFN clauses, some wonderful historical uh, work in the, in the body of those reports. Uh, on uh, the way in which MFN developed in treaties of friendship, commerce, and navigation. But the also, there were also uh, 
several, not a large number, but a few decisions of the International Court of Justice in which the Most Favored Nation Clause had come up, and there's some preliminary discussion in those cases, including the Anglo-Iranian case, the case concerning the rights of nationals of the United States of America in Morocco, and the Ambatielos case, and there's also a separate Ambatielos arbitration. And there was a considerable body of decisions of national courts, often in Europe, and often French courts that had to interpret uh, the most favored nation provisions that applied there. The approach of the commission was to study most favored nation clause, or the most favored nation clause, and most favored nation treatment in, as they said, as a legal institution, and not simply as a matter of the law of treaties. And they wanted to look at the clause much more broadly and not limit it to the field of international trade. And as they said in their reports, they tried to avoid trying to resolve matters of what they referred to as a technical economic nature. And that, of course, given the history that I've mentioned, perhaps is a bit problematic uh, because it per perhaps tried to put MF into a broader context than it might have otherwise fitted. Well, the end result was 30 draft articles dealing with a whole range of matters. In particular, they tried to define most favored nation treatment in terms of treatment accorded by the granting state to a beneficiary state, the state that granted MFN being the granting state, the, the state that received it being the beneficiary uh, state, or to persons or things, not just a granting to a state, but granting to the nationals of a state, in what is referred to as a determined relationship with that state. In other words, they were talking about not just the state, but in persons or things that had some particular relationship with the state. And they said this treatment would be no less favorable than the treatment extended by the granting state to a third state or to persons or things in the same relationship. And I'll come back to this determined relationship uh, idea in a second. But you can see, even when you look at the language of uh, Article 4 of those draft articles, you can see they were seeking to describe uh, what I have mentioned earlier as uh, the, most, the essence of a most favored nation provision. State A agrees to give State B treatment that is no less favorable than they grant to any other state. Now, one of the important things that is said in those draft articles was that the most favored nation clause was exclusively a treaty obligation. There was no example of a customary international law obligation to grant most favored nation treatment. And nor did the special rapporteurs try to suggest that one could be developed from state practice. They simply said that this is a clause found in treaties, and they were concerned to explain its application uh, and to provide guidance to states on how it should apply uh, in the future. Another thing that they said is that the, a, a most favored nation provision does not really grant third party rights. And this was partly intellectual confusion in the earlier time in relation to the clause when people wondered what it is when a state said, we will give state B treatment that we already give to state C under a treaty we have with state C. And some wondered whether if state B was getting the benefits out of an agreement between A and C, was it really acquiring some kind of third party rights under the treaty between A and C. And what the commission said was, or the special rapporteurs adopted by the commission said, no, 
there's no question of third party rights. It's simply getting the same treatment as is granted under, in my example, the treaty between A and C. It's not making state B in any way uh, a the recipient of rights under another treaty. The other matter that they also helped clarify, uh, and it is a, a difficult issue in terms of most favored nation clause, is the operation of what they referred to as the justem generis principle. And that is that the triggering factor for the granting of a most favored nation benefit must be some degree of similarity between the rights claimed and the rights granted under the treaty with the third state. Let me explain that uh, a little bit. And the best way to explain it is in the context of most favored nation treatment in GATT. When I mentioned earlier that if goods of state of another state were granted a preferential tariff at the borders of state A, and another state, state B, said, well, you gave preferential treatment to a third state. I want the same preferential treatment. The goods we're talking about had to be similar. It had to be treatment in respect to the same sort of thing. So if the product was like, in the terms of the GATT, it was a like product that had to be, if it was a like product, it could get equivalent treatment but not any product. There had to be some relationship between the uh, rights claimed and the rights granted uh, to the third state. And in the context of GATT, it's often referred to as the likeness test. You can get most favored nation treatment in respect of like products. It doesn't mean because state A grants a preferential tariff for motor cars, you're entitled to have that same preferential tariff for airplanes because airplanes and cars are not like products. So you can see that this was something that, that the draft articles were very careful in explaining that there had to be some kind of similar relationship. Uh, and as we'll see in the investment area, that's often used, the term often used for that similarity is like circumstances. Well, the, the draft articles are still a very important source for looking back at these explanations of what a most favored nation clause is about and how it is applied. But they were never turned into a convention. The General Assembly has never taken those draft articles and convened a conference and turned it into a convention. And there are a number of reasons for this. And as time has gone on, those draft articles were concluded in 1978, and there's still no convention and no likelihood of a convention. Now, part of the reason for that was that a number of countries, and particularly the European community, were concerned that the draft articles did not talk about any exceptions in the case of customs unions and free trade areas. And if you think about it, that would be important to the European community because the European community provides preferential tariffs and other preferences to the members of the community. If a European community member, a then European community member, had entered into a treaty with a third state granting or a state outside the community under which they granted most favored nation treatment, a state outside the community might then claim on the basis of that MFN clause all of the preferences of the European community. And the community at that time, the members of the community, wanted to make clear in any draft articles of the most favored nation clause that you could not get that benefit. The other question that caused some difficulty in the draft articles was that 
the draft article also draft articles also spoke quite a lot about the circumstances in which most favored nation treatment could not be granted if we were dealing with developing countries. In other words, developing countries would ha not have to grant most favored nation treatment to developed countries uh, in certain context contexts. Uh, that the members tried to deal with a developing concept of preferential treatment, that is the reports of the special rapporteurs, and the commission tried to develop with a developing content, co uh, concept of, 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 of preferential treatment in the trade area. And there were two kinds of reactions to this aspect. On the one hand, some developing countries thought the draft articles didn't go far enough in recognizing preferences that ought to be given to them and not granted to developed countries. And on the part of other states, they felt that the uh, provisions went too far in recognizing preferential treatment uh, and not continuing the basic idea of MFN, which is no preferential treatment. So you got opposition from two sides to the uh, question of preferential treatment. And in fact, in the context of trade, that was more and more being covered by the, uh, the GATT. So there was enough opposition, political opposition, in the uh, General Assembly to any form of taking these draft articles and turning them into uh, any form of uh, international agreement uh, or treaty. They remain, they're consulted from time to time by scholars and by practitioners, but they've never really had a major influence on state practice, uh, or have they been discussed substantially in the literature? Well, what has happened since then? Well, there are two major trends, but perhaps a third, let me start with, is the third. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, in a number of areas where most favored nation treatment existed, uh, sometimes navigation, but particularly diplomatic and consular immunities, these matters are all governed by their own treaties. So the need for states to enter into separate bilateral agreements simply disappeared. And this had the consequence that most favored nation treatment was largely uh, found in the context of trade and in particular in the cornerstone of GATT Article 1. And there are other provisions in the GATT which refer to uh, most favored nation treatment, but the key provision is GATT Article 1. But if you looked at the GATT in more detail, you see not only does it have a most favored nation treatment provision, but it has a substantial number of exceptions to that most favored nation treatment. And one exception is in respect of customs unions and free trade areas. It's known as GATT Article 24. And obviously, if a state that is a contracting party to the GATT and has agreed under GATT Article 1 to provide most favored nation treatment to all other GATT members, if it enters into a customs union like the European uh, Union or into a free trade area like uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement, it grants preferences within those agreements, which under GATT Article 1 should be given to all GATT contracting parties. But GATT Article 24 says, no, you don't have to do that. There's an exception for MFN. So if you enter into a customs union or a free trade area, you do not have to provide the benefits of those areas to other GATT contracting parties. Uh, there is a whole range of, there are a number of difficulties about the application of those provisions. Uh, there are difficult questions about the extent of them. Uh, but uh, 
that's something that's regulated under the GATT, and we'll just leave that aside at the present time. In addition to the exceptions in relation to uh, customs unions and free trade areas, the GATT also developed exceptions to most favored nation treatment in respect of uh, developing countries, what was referred to as special and differential treatment, and what is now referred to as an, an enabling clause, which simply says to states, if you decide to give preferential treatment to the products of developing countries, you do not have to comply with GATT Article 1. There's an exception for, for that. There are difficult questions of interpretation about how it's applied, uh, and uh, you may have heard of the famous bananas litigation in the WTO, which in fact uh, dealt to some extent with this question of the extent to which preferential tariffs could be given to developing countries. But it quite clearly showed that within the context of the GATT, that issue was being dealt with inadequately maybe, uh, and the ILC's way of dealing with it in the draft articles simply did not have any relevance to what was happening in the GATT. Further in the GATT, there are also more general exceptions to most favored nation treatment, exceptions in relation to environmental matters, a state that decided to give preference perhaps to products that were not environmentally harmful uh, might be able to uh, avoid applying GATT Article 1, states that took measures to protect health of their citizens, to protect the, uh, the, the, the health and security of their plant population, did not have to comply with uh, GATT uh, Article 1. There are also in the GATT security exceptions uh, as well, so the states didn't have to comply. In, in short, there was a substantial number of exceptions in the GATT that simply rendered the application of the ILC draft articles really not applicable because within the regime of the GATT, these were being dealt with anyway. And of course, with the GATT being transformed into the World Trade Organization, the WTO, those GATT, the GATT MFN provision and the GATT exceptions continued, but MFN was also expanded to include trade and services, to include trade-related aspects of intellectual property, all providing for MFN treatment. And of course, the WTO expanded beyond the relatively small number of market economies uh, in the, uh, that were GATT contracting parties to something uh, uh, in the nature of a 150 countries in the world uh, uh, today, so that it covered a wide range of developing and developed uh, countries. So that the relevance of the draft articles in relation to trade was diminished. Even though the draft articles had actually looked at a lot of the GATT provisions at the time, their relevance to trade was diminished because the WTO was developing as its own separate, more or less self-contained regime dealing with most favored nation treatment uh, and its exceptions. But the other more important development, perhaps, or at least in terms of uh, the, the work that the Commission is going to be doing, was the development of bilateral investment agreements. And in some respects, these bilateral investment agreements were successors to the old treaties of friendship, commerce, and navigation. They uh, really, the growth has been enormous. In the last 20 years, there have been something like 3,000 total bilateral investment uh, agreements. Many include dispute settlement provisions, which allow for investors to bring claims against states, often known as investor state arbitration. Uh, 
There has been increased use of the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes and their rules and processes for uh, resolving these disputes. The use of UNSA trial rules is substantial for the uh, settlement of these disputes. All of these facilitate the arbitrations and there has been a growth in those investment arbitrations. Investment agreements, bilateral investment agreements, routinely use and include a most favored nation provision. They also include uh, national treatment provisions. They also include something that's often referred to in the older days as the international minimum standard, sometimes used today in terms of concepts of fair and equitable treatment, full protection and security. They also included provisions about expropriation and provisions sometimes known as performance uh, requirements. Now, MFN has been included in these investment agreements. Now, it's not clear, because this is a relatively new development, whether most favored nation performs the same economic function in the context of investment agreement as it does in the case of trade. Investment agreements regulate generally the investment within the borders of a state. It's something that happens inside the state. The MFN provision initially largely regulated the treatment of goods at the, uh, the border. But nevertheless, uh, the MFN provision is included, uh, although often national treatment is a more important issue in the context of investment because of the investments operating within the state. One of the things investors want is not that nationals get preferential treatment. They want to be treated the same uh, as the best treatment given to nationals as well as the best treatment given to foreigners in investment. Moreover, the scope of most favored nation treatment is broader in more and more in the context of investment agreements because often it applies not just to the way in which an investment is to be operated. It also applies to the ability to, to enter into an investment, what is often referred to as the pre-establishment phase. So if someone, a foreign company, is bidding on a contract within the government or bidding on the opportunity to establish an investment. Uh, it's meant to be treated uh, under the MFN in the same way as any other foreigner. And not just investment agreements, bilateral investment agreements, but also regional free trade agreements that include investment, regional economic integration agreements, all include uh, provisions relating to most favored nation clause. So suddenly from something that existed in the old bilateral investment of old bi bilateral fr friendship, commerce, and navigation agreements, and then later become incorporated largely in GATT. In more recent years, there's been a proliferation of agreements that now include most favored nation treatment in the context of investment. And even though, as I mentioned, it may be that national treatment is more important than most favored nation treatment in the investment context, it has become very controversial. And it's become controversial from the way in which it has been interpreted and applied. And it all arises out of a case, which I'm going to describe in a minute, between a, an investor, an Argentinian uh, investor, Mr. Maffazzini, who had an investment in Spain. And there is a bilateral investment agreement between Argentina and Spain. And under that bilateral investment uh, agreement, if a, an Argentinian national wanted to bring a claim against the Spanish government for
for violation of the terms of the investment agreement under the investor state dispute settlement provision. It first had to bring the case to a domestic court in Spain. And then the case had to at least wait for, at least the investor had to wait for 18 months. After a period of 18 months after the commencement of the case in the domestic court, if the matter was not resolved, the investor could then bring a claim under the, the investor state provisions of the Argentine-Spain uh, bilateral investment agreement. Mr. Maffazzini didn't want to do that. He didn't want to wait for 18 months. And in the Spain-Argentina bilateral investment agreement, there was a most favored nation clause. And that most favored nation clause said, in all matters subject to this agreement, this treatment shall be not less favorable than that extended by each party to the investments made in its territory by investors of a third country. In all matters subject to this agreement, the treatment given should be no less favorable than that given to the investor of a third country. Well, Spain also had a bilateral investment agreement with Chile. And under that bilateral investment agreement, there was no obligation to wait for 18 months before bringing a claim under the investor state dispute settlement provisions. So Mr. Maffazzini said, I want to be treated no less favorably than a Chilean national in Spain. And a Chilean national who wants to bring a claim against Spain does not have to wait for 18 months. A Chilean national can immediately bring the claim. And I'm entitled to no less favorable treatment under the MFN provision than a Chilean national. And so argued that the tribunal had jurisdiction to hear his claim, even though he had not waited 18 months as required under the Argentine-Spain uh, bilateral investment agreement. Spain argued that an MFN clause only applies to substantive rights. It does not apply to procedural rights. And he was trying to invoke the, the MFN clause to get a procedural right under the uh, investor state agreement instead of a substantive right. And the tribunal rejected Spain's argument. They simply looked at the terms of the MFN clause and said, the MFM clause applies to all matters subject to this agreement. And they looked at the prior jurisprudence on the application of MFN. Uh, they looked at Spain's other in investment agreements, bilateral investment agreements. Uh, and they came to the conclusion that Mr. Maffazzini was entitled to claim uh, MFN treatment uh, on the basis of a better provision for an investor under the Chilean-Spanish agreement than he had under the Argentina-Spain bilateral investment agreement. And the implication of this seemed to be that Mr. Maffazzini could reach out and take from any other bilateral investment agreement any benefit that seemed better to him than he found under the Argentina investment agreement. Now, the tribunal was a little bit worried at the potential scope uh, of its decision because they included a number of uh, limitations or exceptions. And they said, for example, well, you wouldn't be able to change the procedure if, in fact, the investment agreement said the investment would be resolved under exit procedures. You wouldn't be able to override that and argue that you have some other kind of procedures, UNSA trial, for example. 
or in a treaty like NAFTA, which has its own dispute settlement provision, you couldn't use the MFN clause to reach out and get a better dispute settlement system. Or if the treaty provided that at a certain point you had to decide whether you would follow the investor state provisions or you'd go through domestic courts, what is often referred to in this context as a fork of the road provision, having decided to go one route, you couldn't then take the benefit of an MFN clause to allow you to go to a different route. And they also said if it was a substantial exhaustion of local remedies rule, you couldn't override it. It's not clear on what legal basis the tribunal found all these exceptions. And all you can conclude is the tribunal thought that the scope of their decision was potentially so broad that they ought to put some limitations uh, on it. Well, if you look at the jurisprudence of investor state dispute settlement since the Maffazzini case, you find that some cases appear to follow Maffazzini, some cases appear not to follow Maffazzini. Some cases seem to look at similar clauses and reach the same conclusion. Some cases look at similar clauses and uh, produce the opposite conclusions. So within this area of investment agreement, MFN has suddenly become a, a very big issue and very divided opinions about the application of it. And if you try to go back to the 1978 draft articles and say, well, do they help resolve that problem? It simply says in draft article 9 that the rights that the investor are entitled to on an MFN clause are rights that fall within the subject matter of the clause. Well, that doesn't really resolve this issue of whether, for example, it, an MFN clause grants substantive rights only and uh, not procedural rights, which is part of the big issue in Maffazzini. So there is a, a broad policy question relating to how these provisions are to be interpreted. And it's a question that causes government some concern as they enter into these agreements. They enter into agreements and they grant most favored nation clause. Do they know how that most favored nation clause will be interpreted in the uh, future? Now, there have been some developments. Some try to limit the scope of most favored nation clauses. And as I mentioned uh, earlier on in the investment area, some agreements say that you can only get uh, treatment in respect of investments that are in like circumstances. So there has to be some similarity between the investment that is claiming the benefit and the investment where they argue that a, a better benefit is provided. Uh, some bilateral investment agreements exclude dispute settlement from the application of the MFN clause. But there are many clauses that simply state most favored nation treatment, some with exceptions, some with not. So it raises a question of how do you go about interpreting uh, this? Do we start simply with the Article 31 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties? Uh, does that provide sufficient guidance? If one looks at some of the cases, you get the impression that the way in which interpreters perceive the purpose of the MFN clause has an impact on the way in which they interpret the MFN clause. And if MFN clauses are seen as promoting non-discrimination and harmonization, then a treaty may interpret the clause in a very broad way. If they're seen as simply having a narrow economic purpose, they may be limited to substantive rights. And sometimes it seems to be the underlying assumption of the treaty interpreter that leads to the result 
rather than any clear objective way in which the treaty has been interpreted. And the underlying concern in all of this is what is sometimes referred to as treaty shopping. That is, if you have a claim under a bilateral investment agreement, you will simply go out and look for a better investment agreement entered into by the state against which you're bringing the claim and simply pick and choose from amongst those agreements the provisions that you find most favorable and then argue that you can incorporate them into your claim uh, under the most favored nation uh, provision. And of course, one question that arises in the investment context is, is does GATT provide any providence? Uh, got any guidance on this sort of uh, issue. GATT's got its own self-contained system. How has how MFN interpreted in the, in the dispute settlement system under the WTO agreements? They have uh, panels and appellate bodies that have in fact looked at MFN, looked at national treatment. So then can some guidance be uh, gained for the investment context by looking at the trade uh, context? These concerns, these factors, led the Commission to decide to look again at the question of most favored nation clauses. And so the International Law Commission set up a study group that will start to look at this question. And the study group uh, had its first meeting uh, last year. Uh, and as a result of that meeting, the study group decided to undertake a number of studies to look at the whole issue of most favored nation clause and try to determine what can be done in that context. What it did first of all was to have members of the study group undertake studies on first of all the 1978 draft articles and where there may be potential gaps or where improvements might be made. To look at the work done uh, through dispute settlement under GATT and the WTO looking at WTO and GATT's interpretation of MFN and, in fact, of national treatment to the extent that they are similar, to look at work done by UNCTAD and OECD to see whether the work that they have been doing provides help and guidance uh, on the uh, interpretation of MFN, particularly in the context of investment, and then to focus on investment as well and to look at the Maffazzini decision and all the surrounding decisions to see whether or not uh, a, a better understanding uh, of them uh, uh, can, be, uh, can be brought to bear uh, on whatever work uh, that is to be undertaken by the, uh, the Commission. And, and that, of course, raises the question of what kind of work uh, can the Commission do on this. At the moment, the work of the Commission is being put together in a study group where members of the Commission can study the whole question, look at it from a variety of dimensions, and then see what might usefully be done uh, by, the, uh, by the Commission in this area. And that leads me to, finally, to some questions that this exercise gives rise to about both MFN and really about the work that the Commission can do on this topic. And the first of all is this is an interesting example where the International Law Commission is planning to revisit work that it has done in the past. Generally, the Commission finishes its work, whether it's in the form of draft articles or in some other form, presents that work to the General Assembly, and then moves on to another topic. Here, unusually, although not the only time, the Commission is going back and looking again at work it did in the past to see whether 
it can be uh, made uh, brought up to date or whether there are gaps or whether there's some sort of contemporary application that the Commission can usefully uh, do something about. The second thing that this exercise shows is that it raises questions about the kind of areas that the International Law Commission can engage in. Most Favored Nation Clause was seen by the Commission some time ago uh, as a principle or a clause that embodied a principle that might have more broader application. And as I mentioned, the earlier draft articles were based on research that tended to look at MFN in a broader international law context. The reality today is that Most Favored Nation Clause operates in two contexts, both economic. One, the GATT and WTO agreements. The other, the investment agreements. So the question really is whether or not the Commission is a body that should be focusing on more general international law principles or whether it ought to look at areas such as economic law uh, where perhaps a broader range or different kind of expertise may be necessary. And that raises a question of policy for the Commission. How far does it go in going beyond the traditional bounds uh, of international law? A lot of its work in the past has been in what would generally be regarded as mainstream international law issues, diplomatic immunities and privileges, law of treaties, even law of the sea in the earlier days. Economic law is a much more recent development in international law and one that is not generally seen as part of uh, the broader principles of international law, part because it's treaty-based. The third question that arises uh, out of this exercise is what today is the appropriate output for work of the Commission? Historically, the Commission prepared draft articles which would codify or progressively develop international law, which could then be used by states the classic model would be the convening of a diplomatic conference and the drawing up of a multilateral convention. But of course there has not been that convening of a diplomatic conference and drawing up of a multilateral convention uh, in the last 20 years that has happened very often. Uh, often the Commission's work remains as draft articles, uh, guidelines, and then there's also the study that was undertaken uh, by the Commission in the last quinquennium on fragmentation of international law. So the question is whether or not the Commission can take on a topic without any explicit objective to produce draft articles, but with an objective of providing some clarification to states in perhaps a different format from draft articles or draft guidelines that would be useful and still within the mandate of progressive development of international law and its codification. And that leads me to the final point, which arises out of my that third proposition, and that is what in this particular area might the Commission be able to do? And of course there are a range of things one might think of. For example, the Commission might take the 1978 draft articles and simply rewrite them. I think it's highly unlikely the Commission will do that, but it's something that some Commission members think ought to be considered. Commission might take most favored nation clauses and produce a series of model clauses uh, for states, indicating what those clauses look like 
and what the meaning or implication of the use of certain wording might be. The Commission also might simply undertake an analytical study of this area and produce for states simply a statement of what the situation is in relation to most favored nation clauses uh, are at the present time where the areas of difficulty are and perhaps give some guidelines as to how those difficulties might be resolved. All of these are possible outcomes. The work of the study group is ongoing and so we don't yet know what the actual outcome of the work on this topic uh, will be. In any event, it's likely that over the next several years the Commission will produce studies that will in some way or other, regardless of the outcome, seek to help clarify the understanding of the Most Favored Nation law Clause and thus contribute to the work of the Commission uh, in the progressive development and codification of international law. Thank you.